Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm your host, Brian C. Adams. Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit excelsiorgp.com slash podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. Today with me, Tan Long Nguyen who is the co-founder and chief executive officer of alternative data specialist QuantCube Technology, a company he founded in 2013, building on his experience in the financial services industry, which ranged from quantitative trading and research to risk management and portfolio management. So this is all about what's referred to as big data analytics and being able to leverage that data to make smarter investment choices. Is that directionally right? Yes, uh, exactly. So could you help us? This is a term that gets thrown around a lot, big data. Could you maybe help us define exactly what it means in your mind? By uh, big data, uh, you have uh, different types of data sets. Uh, usually we know structural data, which is numbers like uh, two is greater than one. By big data, you can have uh, what you call the textual data, which is non-structured data. You also have uh, some pictures, uh, satellite data, and when you take a satellite data, is also non-structured data. Also, you can have uh, telecom data, which is really massive data, which belongs also to big data. So big data, it could be as well some structured data. It could be also when it's a very massive amount of data. too. So our firm has been specialized in analyzing all those different types of data sets in real time for the purpose to estimate the state of the economy in real time. So you're taking these data sets that you're getting from primary sources. Is that right? Where are you actually getting the, the data feeds from? Yeah. So for example, you take a satellite data. Quantum has been selected by European Space Agency to develop all kinds of new fintech applications 
based on satellite data. So for this reason, we can have access to any kind of satellite data from European satellites. So I can give you a bit more, some examples. On a satellite, you have three types of sensors. First type of sensor is called Earth observation data. It, it's like you take a picture. Another type of sensor is radar data. You send a wave and you look at how much time it comes back, it takes to come back to measure the height of a building. And another type of data is a composition of the atmosphere to tell you what kind of polluting gas you have in the atmosphere. Fourth type of data is also telecom data. For example, in terms of input, you take Earth observation data. It's like a picture. You put AI algos in computer vision. And in terms of output, it's going to tell you the superficy of a city. If you take a radar data, in terms of input, you have a radar data. In terms of output, you can have the height of a tanker in the sea, which enables to measure uh, when a tanker goes into a port if the tanker is going to upload or unload, for example, oil, using radar data. Third type of data is a density of NO2, which is a polluting gas, for example. And in terms of output, it's going to tell you the industrial production of a city. So I wanted to make the relationship between how you can use those satellite data for the economy. Yeah, I was looking at your website in terms of the some of the media that you've done. And there's one article I think is a good example of this where you actually analyze the pollution coming out of Russia to analyze the deindustrialization or lack of industrial output that's occurring there. Very different from the story that we're hearing from the Russian government itself, right? Is that a good example of how these insights can impact the news and, and how people are analyzing that news? For example, this kind of uh, satellite data, which is a data set from uh, big data, enables uh, to estimate the uh, industrial production of uh, any country where you don't have any data sets or high quality data sets. It could be in this example, Russia, where you can even estimate the industrial production cities by cities because Russia is the largest country in the world, almost 10 million square kilometers. So we're able to use satellite data to see the industrial trend in terms of automotive industry, in terms of defense industry, in terms of steel industry, etc. But you can use also this kind of data set for any city in China also because you are probably aware that the, the quality of uh, Chinese data is not, I would say, as good as the one in the US. So using this kind of satellite data is also very powerful to estimate the Chinese economy, which is a driver of the world economy too. Yeah, I mean, China's notoriously distrusted when it comes to their economic data and demographic data that they produce internally. And it's taken with a grain of salt by Western analysts. So you've got kind of Russia and China in particular. I'm curious, just on a broader scale, after you've been doing this, how far apart is the actual primary data points and sets that you're getting from the narrative that we read about in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, or some of these primary media outlets? 
is there a really big gap there between the data that we're getting as just a consumer investor versus what the reality is on the ground? Let me give you some uh, example. At the beginning of this year, Wall Street consensus on Chinese economic growth was strong economic growth because of the opening on China. On our side, at the contrary, using this kind of satellite data, we could see a downtrend of industrial production, of automotive production. Too. So it was an example at the beginning of this year. So it also enables to show that sometimes the Wall Street consensus is not always in the right direction. And using satellite data is a very factual data. You can really say where this industrial production comes from, where it slows down. And what we could see at the beginning of uh, this year, the southeast part of China has been quite impacted, but the quality of the air was excellent, in fact. But if you go to the northeast part of China, you still have lots of uh, pollution, which is due by uh, the heavy industry production. Yeah, it's worrying to hear that. What does that mean in practice for you all in terms of, let me put it this another way. When you work with an investment manager, you work with endowments and pension plans and large mm-hmm. fund managers and capital allocators, right? Yes. How? What questions are they asking you? And what data are they looking to you for you to supply to them as they allocate capital and make investments? So it is true, our, most of our clients are financial institutions, could be global macro hedgehogs, pension funds, index providers, and as well central bank. And what they are very interested in is about how to get access to some economic data where probably quality is, could be of the high quality. And China, and we could see there is lots of interest of most of them from China. And what we are able to deliver is to tell you with full transparency where economic growth comes from. Not only from industrial production, which I, has, I have mentioned, you follow up the industrial production at city level using satellite data. But also we track more than 80,000 vessels ship in real time. So every uh, 15 minutes, we can tell you where any ship is in the world. And uh, for example, in China, you have, it's the largest, you have the largest ports. So we can tell you how many tankers you have in Shanghai, how many port containers, etc. How many, how much uh, crude oil has been imported, how much iron ore has been imported. And commodity is at the beginning of the supply chain. So when you see slowdown in terms of commodity imports, you already know that you can expect some slowdown on industrial production. Another type of alternative data that we use, for example, for China, we track all the Chinese tourists around the world too. So it's why? Because it is a component of the consumer discretionary component. And we can see that we're way less than pre-COVID in terms of, of travel from Chinese travelers. And you can have applications because whenever you know that Chinese economic growth is slowing down, it has an impact on Japanese economy, on the U.S. economy, etc. What about in, say, the United States or Western Europe, which I think most of us assume the data points that we're getting as a consumer, as a retail investor, are pretty 
fair and accurate. Is that true? Or is there a big differential there within the US and Western Europe, which are considered the most sophisticated first world countries in many ways? Let me give you some example. Pre-COVID, if you look at on a quarterly, quarterly basis, the economic growth on, on China, it was 8.0%. Next quarter, it was 8.0. Next quarter, 8.0. Then 7.9, 7.9, 7.6, 7.6, 7.5, etc. You can see that there is no variance within Chinese economic growth. Compare if you look at the variance of U.S. economic growth or Eurozone economic growth, there's some variance into this data. So only by looking at that, you know that you cannot, it's not as high quality as what you have either in U.S. or Eurozone, or it's not comparable at all. What about CPI and GDP, right? Those are two examples of metrics that are very closely watched. There's forecasting. And then the numbers drop, right? I think today was employment data for the US. There's all these analysts that come in and they say, oh, it should be between this and that. And the market reacts if it's under or over. What do you think about the data points that, say, for example, the, the Fed is using or the White House is using to determine economic growth in America? Do you think they're accurate? Should they be using different data points? No, data points are that either the Fed or U.S. government uses are very accurate. But what is missing is lagged. Data are lagged. Official data are lagged. GDP can be published with three months delay. And when data is lagged, after if you want also some to make some governmental policy, because official data is lagged, that's governmental policy could be counter-cycle too. So the, the problem in terms of data is not the quality of data, but when it is released, when it is computed. And now what we add to the market is this ability to estimate directly in real time, either inflation, economic growth, international trade, employment. Let's get into, say, how the Fed has treated inflation data over the last 24 months as they try to rein things in the U.S. To your point, there's a lag. The Fed has been accused of being very bulky, slow-moving ship that is hard to turn. And that some of the data they use is maybe not the best way to determine what's happening from an inflation perspective. Do you think they've managed it well? Or do you think that they should be looking at different data points and different data sets to make different, more nimble decision-making in their meetings. Yeah. My point of view on, I think that the Fed has done a good job when you assume that it's data-driven. And what they look at, it is in terms of inflation also. And using our data, the only thing is that they could be faster by one or two weeks. But one or two weeks is that fine. It's not one or two months delay. With our data, because we are able to do it in real time, this is, we were able to predict the actions of the Fed. So, for example, there was, uh, were 10 hikes in the row, and in June, there was no hike. This is something that we have predicted that there was no hike at this time because we are able to compute in real time the core services component of inflation. And we could see the slowdown of the core services component as soon 
as mid April in real time. So this is why, let's say you, you put a two a week lag, you get this number in May and the decision was taken in June. And again, we can see in real time that inflation uh, goes up and we would expect some further hike. I think that the Fed policy has been done uh, quite well, but except that maybe uh, with a two-week lag. So could you give an example of how an investor would leverage that knowledge? Are we talking about trading strategies, asset allocation, shorting, longing the market? Is it all of the above? Even I'm sure there's more esoteric mechanisms, but people yeah. are taking these and, and actioning on them, right? Yeah. When uh, you use uh, this kind of uh, real-time inflation data, and this is how our clients use data, we have different typology of uh, clients. It could be from hedge funds uh, for more short-term positions to pension funds, more for asset allocation. For example, related uh, to inflation, because we are able to compute it in real-time, at least on a daily basis, as soon as November 2021, when there was the largest increase of inflation, we could see as soon as uh, mid-November, the, the increase of inflation. And we were ahead by two weeks to the consensus, which was disclosed around December 8th and 9th, an official number December 13th. Since we could see the, the inflation trend, so uh, you can do some arb- fixed income arbitrage between tips and treasuries. And uh, last year, for example, because you have high inflation, and a strong variance, high variance, you have also lots of dispersion within the consensus. And this kind of a real-time data enables to arbitrage also the consensus. So it enables to have opportunities, not only for fixed income arbitrage. And second thing, when you take the intersection between real-time inflation and real-time economic growth, especially in US and China, it tells you where we currently stand in the macro cycle. So it means that you can estimate in real time where we stand in the macro cycle. Because after, depending on where you stand in the macro, in terms of macro regime, you can do some specific sector rotation to select what type of commodity, what type of fixed income. And you can see that it delivers positive performance, whatever the asset class and the reason is because it, uh, it enables to estimate in which macro regime you stand. We put together a free resource available exclusively to our podcast listeners. If you're looking for strategies to safeguard your portfolio against inflation, you want to check out our latest guide on the best alternative investments to consider. Head to ExcelsiorGP.com download to learn more. So we're recording this in September of 2023. I kind of want to ask these two questions about Russia and China, where you seem to have a lot of focus and and in-depth knowledge. There's been headlines about China deflating industrial output below forecasting. They're suffering some demographic population issues. Are you bearish on China? Do you think those headlines match the actual data on the ground that you are accruing and analyzing? And in fact, we could see, uh, as I have said at the beginning, the downtrend of Chinese economic growth since the beginning of the year. 
And if I show you a satellite data on the city of Wuhan, for example, Wuhan is a specialized in automotive sector. It, it is now well known, but also it is an industrial city specialized in automotive sector. And you will see using satellite data, there is no industrial production anymore or it's almost flat. Uh, I'm not uh, surprised, and this is exactly what we have expected, that uh, those uh, industrial numbers would be lowered, significantly lowered. And it's not a matter of population. It is something that uh, there is not uh, that much demand from the Chinese demand. That's the deflation that we're hearing about, yeah. how there's just not the consumer demand out there. And, and you're seeing that corresponding evidence and data? Sure, of course. And I'm happy to send you some pictures on that. We, I mean, we track all industrial cities. So it's very factual. You can see that there is a very little production at this stage. Another data set that you could use, as I have said, we track all ships that carry crude oil. And especially ships that we even track Russian ships that carry crude oil. And we could see the down, the down trend of import of crude oil from Russia now for more than a quarter to Saudi Arabia has put some restrictions on that, but it's not significant because the Chinese economy has gone down already. What about Russia? There's a lot of talk about how the sanctions at first didn't really have a huge impact because the Russian economy was buoyed by oil and gas sales to Europe and, and others. China was a big buyer of that energy. But it seems like now the narrative is turning that some of these, that the inflation caused by the war and some of these sanctions are having a real impact on the Russian economy. What's your take there? What we have followed up, and it has been published in quite a few well-known newspapers since last year, we have tracked Russian tankers getting out of Russia. And at the beginning of the year, for example, we could see an increase of roughly 60% of Russian exports to Asia. From there, we knew that at the beginning of the year, there was no financial impact of the sanctions on Russia because of this ability to export that much crude oil. But since China has slowed down, and we could see since April, basically since April or May, we could see the downtrend of uh, the export of Russian oil, which is 20% less than at the beginning of this year, before the increase too, and it's even less. So it means that there is not that much currency going now into Russia. So there is now also definitely some impact on Russian economies. What are your clients' focused on today in terms of geographic area or data sets that are not being talked about in the mainstream media? Anything that you're seeing or analyzing that would be contrarian or just not on the radar of the mainstream financial media right now? First, uh, what we could see now is that uh, China has hit a very low point. But now I think it has stabilized. Compared now to what Wall Street consensus sees, a decline of Chinese economic growth. Now we do not see any more, any further decline on Chinese economic growth. This is the first thing that we see. The second thing that we could see clearly is a bounce back now of inflation. Because those last few months, inflation has been down. And now we can see that it's bouncing back. 
for two reasons. It, it is a price of energy, but also the price of uh, inflation core services in terms of salaries. I'm curious to get your perspective. You're based in Paris, right? Yes, I do. What the story in the U.S. is that Europe is struggling, right? Germany is is suffering deflation and deindustrialization. There's some real demographic challenges in Southern Europe that the EU is not fulfilling its mandate in many ways. Obviously, the energy situation that occurred last winter was problematic. What are you seeing and feeling there? Is Are you bullish on Europe? Are you bearish? I'm curious what the data tells you and then anecdotally living in, in Paris and being based there. What does it feel like right now? Yeah, I, I think uh, for Europe, uh, we have to look at really country by country. And uh, Germany is directly impacted, as I have said, by China. Germany, they, they are specialized in the automotive industry, which is directly impacted. And this is what I have uh, mentioned, uh, you know, around uh, Wuhan too. So, of course, about Germany, we can, uh, it's difficult to be bullish at this point because Germany is specialized in manufacturing industry. Now, when you look at, for example, France and Spain and even Greece, why I mentioned those three countries? Because those countries are well known for hospitality, for hotels, etc. And you can see that still consumers have done some lots of savings those previous years and they keep traveling. They don't spend that much, but still they keep traveling. And this is why we could see this part, a very strong part of those young travelers which drives a part of the economic growth. One industry that does very well, too, is not only aeronautics, because people keep traveling, but also defense industry. And if you look at, you know, France and Italy, they are also specialized in the defense industry, too. And this is this kind of industry which has also driven the economic growth of France and Italy. So what I want to say is more globally, I I don't I I'm not very bullish, but I'm not very bearish as well because some se- sectors are doing good, but so, and some sectors are not going doing as good as expected. To or to summarize, I can say that at sector level, yes, some sectors benefit from this economic environment, and some sectors do not. So as we look out onto the kind of broader global landscape, there's a lot of talk about reshoring and nearshoring manufacturing away from Southeast Asia, away from China for geopolitical reasons. Obviously, microchips are the headline news, but theoretically and conceptually, it's going to be other product types as well. Are you seeing that actually reflected in the data? Yeah, and this is uh, now what uh, we currently track and what we currently work is uh, the transformation of the supply chain. And in terms of supply chain, you get the supply chain for electrical vehicles, the supply chain for semiconductors, supply chain for batteries, supply chain for agro-business or fertilizers. So now this is what we're currently tracking, basically by looking at the new construction of those factories. It could be across U.S., it could be the different policy in Europe also to create those factories. And we have now this kind of technology to look at between what it has, what it is said and what's going on using, for example, this kind of satellite data as well. And so you agree or disagree? Is it happening? 
Oh yeah, is, it is, that, is happening. That... Oh yeah, oh, it is definitely happening. Definitely, and it's more on what you call strategic sectors or critical sectors. Yeah, so the microchips and everything downstream yeah. from that, but that's the priority, obviously. Yeah. What about global trade? There's a lot of conversations about deglobalization, about how because of this geopolitical situation we're in, especially in Southeast Asia and Europe, that some of these infrastructure trade agreements, global trade that occurred over the last 50 years has peaked and is declining. Would you agree with that assessment? This is what we would expect. I do not have at this point any data to show, to prove it because we, we did not look at the right location. Let me clarify on that. If you want to have some good view on a regional trade, the location to look at are, for example, Canal of Suez, Suez Canal, Panama Canal, Ormuz, Detroit, etc. Before, we did not look at this location, but now we start to look at those destinations. But because we do that in real time, we still need some time to look at what kind of conclusion. But I think it's happening, but to have the right data, I think it's we need to look at those locations to see exactly what's happening, to quantify so, clearly, yes. Yeah, you don't have enough data yet, but these are things that are on your radar that you are looking to assess, and so it's top of mind for you. Yeah, and especially about how to quantify it. Right. I want to pivot. Do you do a lot of work within the ESG environmental commodities space? There's been seemingly much more stress, obviously, with the change of the climate, with this geopolitical challenges that we're facing today with the volatility. You have the ability to look at what I think is pretty interesting, which is water stress levels. And and drought and food scarcity are usually lead indicators for some type of political volatility within a lot of these second, third world countries. Any commentary that you could provide about what you're seeing in terms of water stress or, or food stress today in the world? Yeah, we have developed the technology years ago to using a, radar, a combination of Earth observation and radar data to estimate the level of lake, but for more than 10,000 lakes around the world. And the reason was for more for commodity trading by mapping crops of corn, wheat, soybeans, with those lakes. And in real time, we can see, we are able to measure in real time the superficy of any lake in the world. For example, last year, we could see that there was no water left as soon as mid-April in Rajasthan, India, which is one of the largest producers of sugar and wheat. So we were not surprised by the ban of wheat. And again, it's happening because we can see some drought in India. We could see the drought, I think it was the first quarter, I think it was in Texas and Arkansas. So this is this kind of data set that we can definitely see. And from there, we have done some modeling to estimate the surplus, the export surplus of wheat or of corn. And depending on the export surplus, not only it has an impact on the price, but it could have especially more geopolitics impact because if there is no surplus to export, some countries need definitely to have access to food. What are the other 
big storylines or data sets that you may personally or as a firm are interested or following that don't get much attention from mainstream media? What questions should I be asking you that I'm not asking you? Yeah, not sure. Let me uh, share the latest technology that we currently work on. And uh, usually I do not expect media uh, to speak on it because this kind of data does not exist yet. For example, uh, now the latest technology that we have been developed is uh, to track or to estimate uh, any real asset of a corporate. Uh, To clarify, you provide us the name of a corporate and we are able to tell you in real time where is where are all the real assets or factories of this corporate in a systematic way, in a dynamic way, without using any official data. It combines satellite data, it combines text, multilingual text analytics, etc. It's in fact it's a military technology that we use for that. So now we are able to track the assets of any corporate. On top of that, now you can do different types of things. If you want to estimate the occupancy rate of factory, after locating those factories, you can cross that with telecom data. Using telecom data is going to tell you about the occupancy rate of a factory. So more about if you want to estimate the future earnings of a corporate, if you are able to estimate the production of any factory, you will see the global production, you can estimate the earnings. And second thing, for environmental impact, when you have tracked or located those factories, you use different types of satellite data to estimate either the pollution, the deforestation, etc. So this is this kind of data set that after that could be used and usually are not going to be disclosed on the press because it does not exist yet. So this is the latest technology that we currently work. We have done already some applications, again, for the automotive industry, for example. So... First off, thank you. This has been fascinating. appreciate it. I've just got a few more questions as we wind the conversation down. If you were allocating capital, personally or as a firm, what geographic areas and what industries would you go long on right now? What are you bullish about? Yeah, as I have uh, mentioned, I, we really look at a sector by sector. And uh, let's say two, and, uh, this is what I have said. Two sectors, uh, unfortunately, I'm bullish. One of them is defense industry, because I, we do not expect more geopolitical risk. And you can we can see it from our data, because we do also social media analytics, textual nat- analytics to estimate what you call the country risk too. Oh. So we do not see going down. And second thing I have mentioned about, you know, the tourism industry, and we can see that some specific companies are doing very well because some consumers have savings and want to still to travel. In terms of healthcare, too, we can see that there is lots of spending on healthcare and there is some strong consumer demand. Where I'm going to be more bearish are more sectors which depends on the economic growth, especially cyclical sectors. Too. I wouldn't go that much on those sectors because we can see, we could already see the downtrend of the Chinese economic growth, we expect as well the downtrend of U.S. economic growth. I want to thank you for coming on. This has been terrific. For our listeners, please do leave us a review, a rating. Let us know the favorite part of the conversation. If people are interested in engaging with you, the content you're creating, or learning more about your firm's services, what's the best way for them to find out more? 
you could go directly to our website. You go to QuantCube technology and you can request something that people like is we do a monthly newsletter where we tell you about the current state of the economy on a monthly basis. And let me tell you, for example, uh, the next newsletter that we will publish a, a few days from now, because we are able to estimate the current state of the economy, risk on, risk off, we can demonstrate that you can do a short only investments. You can deliver positive performance of short only investment strategy from 2016 to 2023. So it means we are very able to estimate any market drawdowns. Yeah, terrific. Thank you again for joining us. One question we ask people to come on the show. Do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? One thing that I love doing in the morning is to take my time with my kids to have high quality time with them. I have a little girl. She's four years and a half. I enjoy it so much before going to work. And I never do any meeting on very early morning time because I want to spend this kind of time with her. So this is basically my day. In the morning, I'm very happy with my family, my little kids, go to work. I always think about what I'm doing, and this is how I'm very happy. Too. Good for you. Thank you for sharing that, and thank you for coming on. This is fascinating. I definitely encourage people to sign up for the newsletter, go check out the website. You all are doing some really outside-the-box data analysis and providing some contrarian investment theses and, and approaches. So keep up the good work. I look forward to staying in touch, and thank you again for joining us. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. <laughs> 